0: Hey Podcast World, welcome to a unique and different episode of FNO and o Tech. I am your host, Mr. Rob Beller, and I am the co-host, Lee Boyd. Actually, I think we're both co-hosts. Well, I just went with it. I just want to correct the record here. Well, if we're both co-hosts, it's going to be Mr. Lee Boyd? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, that's not out. I gotta know my place, right? Fact, I texted your wife if we could call you Mr. Lee Boyd and she said no. So oh well that that's, makes that's, sense. It's out. That's out. Anyways, we have a interesting and different episode today. An episode with an interview that actually, Lee, you are not on it. Uh, no, I was not on this one. No, Lee was under the weather. I was yes, completely down on the ground. That was a tough time. Right. So when we were recently at the Elevate conference, exactware's big User conference in Salt Lake City in February, I had the opportunity to interview somebody who's actually really kind of important and a big deal in our industry. And that's Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State University. He's the guy that runs the team that does hurricane forecasting. Well, hurricanes are a pretty big deal in our world, aren't they? They are a big deal that all of us talk about all year long and get ready for all year long. And Phil is the person who thinks about how many are coming and what they're coming. And I think that everybody on our podcast who listens to it and everybody in our industry is aware of his work, whether they're aware of his name or not, but what are we looking forward to? What's going to happen this year? Right. And their accuracy is pretty high. It is. It is. You so, know, I that's something that we do all day long during hurricane season is watch the weather channel. We watch the, the online websites to see where are we going. Take us there. Right. Show us exactly so we can be prepared. So We right. put a lot of faith in that. Right. So for those of you who are big Lee Boyd fans, I'm giving you a warning right now. You're going to be a little disappointed. I'm sorry, everybody. Lee wasn't on. Or, I'm, you know, congratulations, whatever it may be. So Mr. Lee Boyd. Thank you, Rob. Will not be on this episode. <laughs> so don't be listening for him. But do be listening for a lot of insights and information about hurricanes, how it's done and maybe even a little preview about what you can look forward to in Tropical Season 2019. That's exciting. So without further ado, let's go to uh, my interview with Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State University. As we said in the intro, we're privileged today to have Dr. Phil Klotzbach with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here in Salt Lake City. What brings you to Salt Lake City?
1: Yeah, so we're here for the Elevate Conference talking about various natural catastrophes and claims and all that stuff. And obviously the 2018 season was, you know, in the natural disaster department was an incredibly active year for natural catastrophes, especially, I think, in both the hurricane space with Florence and Michael, and then obviously the wildfires, especially the ones in California, were obviously very damaging as well.
0: Sure. So let's just uh, talk for a second about what it is that you do. What do you do?
1: Yeah, so I work in the Atmospheric Science Department at Colorado State University, and basically I've studied hurricanes, tropical cyclones, And one of the things that that we're best known for is the seasonal hurricane outlooks for the Atlantic Basin. So every year before the hurricane season starts on June 1st, we put out a forecast basically talking about how active we expect the upcoming hurricane season to be. And this all started back in the early 1980s with my mentor, Dr. Bill Gray, started doing these seasonal forecasts, and we've been doing it every year since. So this will be our 36th year coming up for doing these seasonal outlooks. So that must be pretty challenging work,
0: right? I mean... You're forecasting the future. You're telling the future, right? And not the seven-day outlook, but months and months down the road, right?
1: Correct, yeah. And I mean, I think it's really, for me, hurricanes, it's a fascinating thing because you can't obviously predict individual weather events, you know, three, four, five months in advance. But what we do is we look at basically kind of large-scale signals in the atmosphere and in the ocean, and basically they'll kind of give you some clues as to how those are likely to transition into the summer and fall during the peak of the hurricane season. And then basically if the large-scale conditions are conducive for the hurricanes, you'll get more of them, and if they're not conducive, you'll have fewer of them.
0: So you look at kind of big general... Indicators.
1: Correct. Yes. Yes. One of the big things that we look at, and one of the reasons the seasonal forecast got started in the early 1980s, was uh, Dr. Gray discovered the relationship of El Nino and Atlantic hurricanes. Basically, when you have an El Niño event, which is warmer than normal water in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean, it tends to increase upper-level winds in the Atlantic, which tear apart the hurricanes that are trying to develop and form. And that was basically one of the first things that he used in these seasonal forecasts. And you know, if you ever listen to seasonal forecasts of hurricanes, you always hear people talking about you know El Niño. And so he discovered this thirty-five years ago, and we're still pretty much using that as one of our major predictors every season. Uh huh. So
0: let's talk about Dr. Gray just for a moment. Because like you said, he was a Titan in your industry, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah. So he got his start in meteorology in the early nineteen fifties as a he was a forecaster in the Air Force. So I think at the end of the day, he did a ton of really great research, but at the end of the day and in his heart, I think he really truly was a forecaster. He got his start in forecasting and was always passionate about forecasting both day to day weather as well as obviously the seasonal level. So You know, by the early 1980s, he had been kicking around tropical cyclones for already over 25 years. So, you know, it was considered kind of not almost heretical to try to be able to predict seasons in advance. It seemed kind of crazy, but, you know, the fact that he had been studying tropical cyclones and already had so, quote-unquote street credibility from all the developments and research he had already done. He was given more credibility, and they kind of heard him out. And then, obviously, he had skill showing it on past data with statistical approaches and then basically showing how that will transition And when he actually issued them in real time, they actually were worth something. You know, if they were above average seasons, he predicted above average and so on.
0: So when you look at your results that you're having today, I'm going to veer a little off that topic here, but if you look at the results you're having today versus the results that he had early on, are you getting better? Is it getting more accurate with time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little tricky because early on in the 80s and early 90s, there were a lot of really, really quiet hurricane seasons. And so, you know, if your average is six hurricanes is a normal season and you get four, you know, whether you predicted three or five, it's going to be close. And then if you have years like 2005 where you had 15, you know, you may be off by three, but that's still a really good forecast when the average is six. So sure. when you get these big outliers, but yeah, I would say overall in general, the forecasts are showing more skill and that's due to the fact we have a lot more data and getting data is a whole heck of a lot easier than it was in the early 1980s when he literally was like calling people up and having them, you know, mail him or, you know, send him this data. And now you can get it all off the computer and build these models a whole lot faster than he sure. could.
0: I'm sure that relatively he was doing it with one hand tied behind his back, right?
1: He was doing it with a slide roll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the insurance
0: industry is super interested in your work, right? I mean, they sponsor some of your work, is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we get sponsors from a variety of different sources. We get some funding from the government. We get some funding from a private foundation. And then we get a lot of funding or we get some funding also from insurance um, and actually even a restoration company uh, fund some of our research. And, you know, it's not like When a seasonal forecast comes out, it can change your insurance rates. Those are set by catastrophe models. And obviously, your insurance rates aren't going up or down four times a year when the seasonal outlooks come out. So I do want to point that across. But there's a lot of interest. I think, first of all, we have a lot of historical hurricane data, which is valuable for kind of knowing, you know, the long-term rates. And I think also, you know, one of the things with the seasonal forecast is it really kind of helps promote awareness for hurricanes. Uh-huh. And obviously, if you have a super active season like 2017 and 2018, you know, when you had a lot of storms doing damage, people are kind of thinking hurricane right now. Mm-hmm. But if we have a quiet season, people kind of forget because, again, they've got bigger fish to fry, similar to in California right now. Very few people are talking about earthquakes, but first earthquake to come around, everyone will be talking earthquakes again. <laughs> and so that's kind of <laughs> that, the way it goes. Right. You know, people forget until you have a, a significant event. and So the seasonal forecast is kind of a good kind of like hook, so to speak, to get people in talking about the hurricanes season every year.
0: Uh So the insurance industry gets reporting from you? I mean, you publish a seasonal forecast many times and update it. I should say you probably publish it once and update it many times?
1: Correct. Yeah. So we do our first forecast in early April, and then we update it in June, July, and August. And so you might hear numbers on TV. But there's, you know, a 20, 30, 40, depending on the, the how much stuff we see, uh, discussion with each forecast. So even with the updates, it's a pretty lengthy discussion where we go into detail saying, here's the models we're using. Here's what we currently see. Here's what we think things are going to go. Here's kind of, you know, the red herrings, the things we think might, might mess up our forecast. And we verify our seasonal forecast at the end of each year. And, you know, even if our forecast stinks, we put out a press release saying, hey, our forecast was lousy. And I mean, I think it's important. It's really important. I to like verify. that.
0: I like that you guys do that. I mean, you, you say we hit it or we miss and maybe this is why.
1: Correct. Yeah. And, and, and you know, with with forecasting, I think in general, you learn a lot more when you bust than when you have a good forecast because it's like, okay, hey, everything worked great. Perfect. We're smart. And then if you have a lousy forecast, it's like, what the heck happened? And you have to go back and figure out, you know why the models didn't go the way that you planned, you know, and that's the nature of statistical modeling. You are going to have some years where the forecast busts because you only have so many realizations of the atmosphere ocean system. Every year is different. I mean, it's similar, but every year is somewhat different. So you can certainly have those kinds of busts. And even given a certain set of large scale conditions, you can have, you know, one or two more or fewer hurricanes, just depending kind of on random noise in the system.
0: Uh huh. So I've uh, read your report many times because you know we're independent adjusters
1: <laughs> i'm sorry i must put you to sleep <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, I, that's what i wanted to talk about for a second is that it starts with like an executive summary of sorts right and it makes your grand point point. and then the next 30 pages 50 pages long are all the details behind kind of your essential point right and who's that written for is that is it an academic exercise
1: I mean, I think to a point it's an academic exercise. I mean, I'm always surprised when people actually look in and ask me questions about something in the middle of it. But there's a few people, I think, that, that get it. I mean, I think it's more— Some weather nerds. There's more for, like, the weather geeks and weather uh-huh. nerds out there. But, I mean, honestly, I do a lot of it just for me, it's just so I have a, I can go back and look and see. And, you know, we have all our forecasts scanned in back to 1984, uh-huh. every single one in sure. PDF. So it's interesting to go back and see, you know, what Bill Gray was using long before I came on the uh-huh. scene.
0: So I have a big question for you. What's Enso?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Enso, um, you may have heard of El Nino, and if you call it Enso, basically El Nino is kind of the ocean component of this whole— so basically El Nino is warmer than normal water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific and when you get that warmer than normal water, it then alters basically the atmospheric circulation. So what happens in the ocean forces the atmospheric circulation. And that's kind of the SO, that's the southern oscillation part of it. And so basically you alter where what where the air is moving up and moving down in the atmosphere. And so in the Atlantic, what ends up happening is you alter the upper level winds, especially in the Caribbean, they become very strong out of the west, and it really tears apart the storm. So typically
0: right. that's shear, correct. Correct.
1: Yes, yeah. So that's shear. So if you hear about shear with tornadoes, shear is conducive for tornado formation, but it's very non-conducive for hurricanes. Too much shear is good news for people living along the coast. That basically uh-huh. means that the hurricane's likely to die.
0: Uh-huh. So let's feed in another wrinkle into this. Let's talk about climate change. There's a lot of Varying opinions about climate change and the scientific community has a a variety of opinions about it. What's your view of this topic? I understand climate change probably is oversimplifying a much larger topic, but how do you think about it?
1: Yeah. So if anyone ever heard Bill Gray, my predecessor talk, he was, a, he was a big climate change skeptic. My views are a bit different from his on that topic. I'm, I mainly focus on the on how it relates to tropical cyclones as opposed to, you know, how much of the, the warming of the last hundred years is driven by humans versus natural variability. And so when it comes to impacts on tropical cyclones, we wrote a paper last year where we went into detail kind of looking at, okay, if you look at the damage from hurricanes in the U.S., it's gone through the roof. But there's a lot of reasons why that damage has gone through the roof. It's not all climate change. and um, Most of the increase in damage we've seen to date is likely just due to demographic changes. We have a lot more people just in the US and then obviously a lot more people living on the coast. And so, and also too, we have more stuff, you know, larger houses, more value. So again, that's not a bad thing, but there's more people and more stuff in harm's way. So when these hurricanes come ashore today, instead of doing, you know, 5 billion, they do 50 billion because there's, you know, a lot more people. And so if you go back and look at historical hurricanes, 1926, there was a Category 4 hurricane went into, right into downtown Miami. It did a huge amount of damage, but in 1926, there were 100,000 people in Miami-Dade County. Now there's 2.8 million, so that storm today is estimated to do, if that storm were to come around today, it'd be $200, 250000000000 billion, so basically like twice what Harvey did. And so that's kind of the idea, is that basically most of the increase in damage that we've seen to date has likely just been due to changes in demographics. But I think when it comes to how hurricanes are likely to change in the future the consensus isn't necessarily that we'll see more hurricanes. It's just that the hurricanes that form maybe end up becoming stronger. We may actually see fewer of them, but that they may be stronger.
0: Is that a function of climate change in your opinion?
1: Yes. Yeah. So basically the idea is is that I think there's a little bit of uncertainty as to why we would necessarily see maybe fewer hurricanes. I think there's some question about that, but in terms of the intensity, basically as you warm the globe, as you warm the oceans, that's more fuel for the hurricanes. But it's not as simple as saying you just warm the ocean, you get stronger storms. Because when you warm in climate change, you warm not just the ocean surface, but higher up in the atmosphere, and that takes some of the edge off of the potential increases. But overall, most of the models say that storms should be getting stronger. The data likely supports that to date, but the data gets really tricky because as you go back in time, our satellite data was worse or, or had lower lower resolution. Correct. We also flew planes into storms less, so. Effectively, all these biases tend to make earlier storms look weaker than they probably were. So it's hard to kind of calibrate a hurricane in 1950 with what we have now in terms of how we're observing them. But I would say, at least in the Atlantic where the observing systems have been fairly stable, it does look like the storms potentially are getting a bit stronger. But I think one of the things we try to emphasize, too, is that, you know, even if the hurricanes themselves don't change at all, just the fact that sea level is going up means potentially more inundation from these storms as well as probably more rainfall. I mean, there's no
0: question about the fact that something's changing, right? I mean, sea level is rising, the poles are melting, right? I mean, that's yeah. indisputable. No, it, no, I mean... I, I guess I, the question is, is why is that, ha- why correct. Is that happening? Correct.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most of the observations, I don't think even, you know, the climate change skeptical community wouldn't say necessarily that those things aren't happening. It's just they would argue more of that's natural versus others say it's mostly you know, caused by humans, and you know it's basically just kind of how they allot the percentages for most of those observations. Like, I think you can't really dispute that. Yeah, I mean, the Arctic sea ice is is going down since the late '70s, and the question is, you know, how much of that is natural versus human caused, and you know, that's I think that's where the debate lies. But certainly, you know, I mean, I think the weight of the evidence certainly bears out that humans are certainly playing you know a substantial role in this warming. I mean, it's just depending on exactly quantifying exactly how much that is, and then again, how that necessarily is going to impact hurricanes in the future is a big question. But one other thing I do like to add is we can make hurricanes a lot worse and a lot better potentially with nothing to do with CO2. I mean if you build in areas that formerly were drainage areas and you have a hurricane, then you have an increased runoff that had nothing to do with the storm being stronger. It's just you have increased runoff because you changed the land surface. Likewise too if you improve building codes and, you know, inspect the buildings and actually build them up to that code, you can reduce the damage and even if the hurricane comes along at the same strength or even stronger, you reduce the damage just... And I think these things are things that we can do at a effect at a local level and, you know, are a lot easier to take on for individuals as opposed to trying to get global governments to change, you know, their CO2 emissions and stuff, which is a much, you know, bigger fish to fry and a lot harder.
0: Right. right. I mean, man creates a lot of their own trouble. I recently saw a presentation that showed pictures of two neighborhoods. It was um, from the Harvey Irma year, and I don't remember if it was Texas or Florida but it showed that they were very close in proximity to each other. But one had one area neighborhood had new building, building codes and one did not. And the old one was pretty devastated and the new one was fine. And so, yeah, it's maybe not that simple, but can make a big difference, yes?
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see that with hurricanes, you see that with wildfires. I mean, we see these things where, you know, things built up to new codes and, you know, taking these necessary precautions. And, you know, as we saw even in a talk this morning uh, from the head of the, the IBHS, talking about how when you build a new, especially with new construction, it's one to 2% more. And you can, you know, not necessarily guarantee, but you can really increase the odds of your house surviving a hurricane. And especially if you think about it, even one or 2%, which, you know, on a $300,000 home sounds like a lot, but When you wrap it into a mortgage, the the change in your monthly mortgage payment is just a few dollars a month. And obviously, if you don't have to be out of your house for three to six months, it makes a huge difference down the road.
0: Mm -hmm. So I have a question for you. What is a hurricane anyways? I mean, can you define that for me?
1: Sure. Well, I mean a hurricane, so you have hurricanes in the Atlantic, and then you may hear about typhoons in the Western Pacific. Those are the same thing. They're just called different names in different areas.
0: So it's just based on location, not, correct. On, not on the weather phenomenon.
1: Correct, yes. They're all formed from the kind of the generic term we use is tropical cyclones. So in the Atlantic and the eastern Pacific, they're hurricanes. Then they're what typhoons in the Western Pacific and other parts of the bay, they're usually or other parts of the world are often just called cyclones. Um, or tropical cyclones. And so what a hurricane is, it's an area of low pressure. So we have areas of low pressure in the middle latitudes, but in the, especially in the Atlantic, your areas of low pressure typically move, there in the summertime, they typically move from east to west, steered by the trade winds. So what happens is you get these disturbances that come off of Africa called waves that come off, and there's about 50 to 60 of them each year. Thankfully, we don't have 60 hurricanes. Most of them normally just Don't do anything, which is great. They just drop a little rain in the Caribbean. But others, if the conditions are right, basically what these waves form—they kind of thrive off of really warm ocean water. And as we mentioned before, shear. If the shear was low, you have a lot of warm ocean water, and the air is moist. You don't want a lot of dry air. Basically, those those kind of clusters of thunderstorms, these areas of low pressure, will basically can start to spin up and intensify, and that'll eventually become a hurricane. So. I think one of the big things is the difference in between a tropical cyclone and a mid-latitude cyclone is tropical cyclones, their primary fuel source is the warm ocean water. So the second they hit land, they weaken. Whereas mid-latitude low-pressure systems, their primary source of energy is basically temperature gradients. So you will get these systems where you get you know, really, really warm water and really, really cold air coming over that warm water and it'll spin up a, a cyclone, but a mid-latitude cyclone, not a tropical cyclone.
0: So we see tropical cyclones in the United States, correct?
1: Mm Hmm. Yes. Yeah. What's
0: subtropical?
1: Okay, so subtropical is kind of like it's kind of in between. Okay. So tropical cyclone, the strongest winds are are near the center. So the center, if in a full blown hurricane, has an eye, and then right near the center is your eye wall, which is where your winds are the strongest. In the subtropical cyclone, the winds will be strong a little further out, and also too hurricanes' strongest winds are near the surface, so they usually max out at, like, 5, 10,000 feet is where the winds are the strongest. If you go into a mid-latitude cyclone, they're, they're stronger higher up in the atmosphere at 30,000 feet. Um, and a subtropical cyclone, again, kind of splits, so to speak, kind of splits the difference. And often, you know, what happens if you get a, sub, a cyclone that forms, say, in the middle latitudes, and it drifts south into the tropics, it may go become a subtropical cyclone. And then if it hangs over warm ocean water long enough, it can become a tropical cyclone. What was Sandy? <laughs> well, Sandy was a tropical cyclone, and then officially by the time it made landfall, it was actually what they called post-tropical. So it no longer had tropical characteristics. So it it was very close to subtropical. Um, typically, again, hurricanes are—you can get really large hurricanes, but Sandy was extraordinarily big, which is why Sandy caused so much damage. Its winds were like 60, 70 miles an hour, so, you know, strong, but nothing—
0: It was just— It was where it hit, Exactly where it hit. Yeah, it was yeah. uh, like a perfect— hit
1: correct and also given how large the storm was it had an enormous storm surge associated with it so you look at the winds and you think yeah that wasn't you know it shouldn't be that big of a deal but because it was so large it had an enormous surge and obviously it went into new jersey and then obviously up into new york city which is the heaviest populated right. area so again population is a huge driver of damage so given when you have a massive storm going into an incredibly densely populated area you're going to see a lot of damage
0: do you remember hurricane dennis
1: which hurricane, Dennis? The one in 2005?
0: Maybe five or four, around then. Yeah. But it went into the panhandle. Yes, yes, 2005. And, and it was a big, bad storm, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. And, you know, being in our business, I mean, <laughs> we watch hurricanes, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have to. Sure. Because we have to be ready. I mean, should it hit just right, we have to deploy and we have to gather a bunch of people and deploy them. So we're watching Dennis, and uh, we're actually deployed because Dennis appeared as though it was going to hit. I don't remember the the exact place, probably Pensacola, Mobile area. I I don't remember exactly, but but at the last minute, it did a little jog, I think, to the right and went into pretty much the middle of nowhere which there's some, a lot of that land or there used to be in the panhandle. And so this super bad storm became really a non-event from a catastrophic standpoint because of where it went, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, we saw that probably the biggest case in point out is Hurricane Brett in 1999. Nobody remembers Hurricane Brett, Uh -uh. but it was a nasty hurricane, but it went into King Ranch, Texas, which nobody lives there. I, I think it, It didn't even do like, it was like, I don't even know if it did $100 I mean, it was an incredibly small event. Had it gone into Corpus Christi or some other place like that, it would have obviously done, you know, a huge amount of damage. And even while obviously Hurricane Michael was devastating for Mexico Beach, you know, the fact that a high-end Category 4 hurricane went in and did $17 billion in damage, that's a ton of damage, but it went into a a very low-density population area. And obviously had Michael made landfall, say, 100 miles further west up in Mobile, you know, we would see damage easily five times, maybe even 10 times as much had it gone to like Tampa. So obviously, when you look at the damage, it's, it's, it's not only a function of the strength of the storm, but obviously a huge function is, you know, where the storm hits. And like you said, with Dennis, had Dennis been a little further west, people would remember Dennis a whole lot more than they do.
0: Do hurricanes tend to hit in certain areas like Tampa, for example, seems very lucky. And I shouldn't maybe say that, but that they've been fortunate that it doesn't seem to go there, the panhandle seems more common. Is there, is, is that the case?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's kind of, the, so the, so basically hurricanes live, basically are like pebbles in a stream. So they basically, whatever the kind of the mid latitude weather pushes them, that's where they're going to go. And so if you look at, you know, hurricane landfall, say in Georgia, they're pretty infrequent in Georgia. Right. And that's because, you know, the way the coastline is shaped, that's fairly far west in there. And typically hurricanes move east, from east to west with the trade winds and then they get to the basically the western edge of the subtropical high the bermuda high they start tracking north and then they go out to sea and if the bermuda high shifted west they'll probably go into like the carolinas maybe or they'll start but they'll start to be heading north so it you can get hurricanes into places like jacksonville but it's not very common it requires certain kind of special circulations to kind of drive these storms and have them do you know unusual things but yes you're right i mean typically tampa you can get them in there i mean this happened but it requires kind of an unusual circulation to push it into tampa as opposed to either further south or else further north. Tend, the storms tend to be either heading north or northwest at that point.
0: I would think that that's something that insurers would be very interested in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, all this data is, you know, all this data is out there in these catastrophe models. They obviously know, have all this historical data. And so what these catastrophe models will do that are what sets the insurance rates is they take the observed hurricane data set. But obviously we only have they usually go back to 1900, so we've got about 120 years of data, and then what they'll do is they'll do these kind of mathematical you know, combinations and permutations of the observed tracks to kind of flesh out. So, so basically it's taking 120 years of data and making it 10,000 years of tracks because uh-huh. obviously you know, just because a hurricane hits one county and missed the county next door— Doesn't necessarily mean that it it couldn't have hit the county next door, which is good or bad luck, so to speak, for that one particular event.
0: Right, because it's always interesting on the NHC site where they expect it to hit. You know, they have this nice, gently slanting line. But afterwards, when you see what it actually did... it moves back and forth, right? It jogs around. It's not quite that straight, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. So, I mean, hurricanes, some of those little wobbles may just be due to internal characteristics of the storm. The eye will grow and reform and shrink and reform, and that can sometimes cause little wobbles. Um, And then also, too, I mean... You know, you kind of have the large scale that steers the storm, but you can have slight wobbles when these little when these systems to the north, say, come near it. They can kind of push it south, push it north. You know, I mean, in a case like last year with Florence, it was really unexpected, not unexpected, but unusual for a hurricane in Florence's position out in the eastern Atlantic to hit the U.S. Normally those storms recurve, but it was a really strong subtropical high. So if all you knew was history, you would say, Florence, that's not an issue. It's going to be a fish storm. It's going to go out in the right. middle of the ocean and die. Right. But because it was a very strong subtropical high. It drove the storm west and even south of due west, and it came ashore. And similar with Irma the year before, where Irma formed, again, normally storms forming there don't make landfall.
0: Uh-huh. uh-huh. So my next question, what did you learn from last summer? What did you learn? I mean, you had two big storms, right? They were just, it was fortuitous. They didn't go to the most populated areas. But I'm sure there was a lot of learning for someone like you.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, they they really kind of highlight how different these events can be. I mean, Florence and Michael were... Both hurricanes, and that's about where the similarities ended. I mean, Florence, from a wind perspective, hardly—I mean, they had a little wind damage, but not very much. It was a Category 1. But obviously, Florence, basically those those steering winds collapsed, so there was nothing really to push it along, kind of like Harvey in 2017, so it just stalled and obviously dumped huge amounts of rain. So with Florence, there was There a was some
0: anticipation of that.
1: Correct, yeah, and that was one of the things that even as the storm weakened— it was kind of like, okay, well, the surge threat's probably going to be less, but the rain threat hadn't changed at all. And that was really kind of the big threat with Florence. And even with Harvey the year before, it was very well anticipated several days in advance that it was going to be, you know. A huge water event, let alone you know a potential wind event. So, with Florence, the wind wasn't—it wasn't a huge wind issue. There was some surge, but obviously most of the damage for Florence was rainfall. You know, up to three feet of rain in North Carolina and two feet of rain in South Carolina. But I think Florence formed off of Africa, so it takes a long time for a system moving. Yeah, 10 you miles watch it for hour. a long time. And it was like Irma. I mean, by the time the storm came, it was like everyone was already done with it because it had been out there for two weeks, and we saw it with Florence too. Whereas Michael was named by the Hurricane Center on a Sunday, so. Very, very rapid, very weak tropical storm on Sunday, category high end, category four hurricane on Wednesday, three days. And so, I think that's an important thing to realize, especially in the Gulf of Mexico. These suckers can blow up on your doorstep because it's the
0: water so warm.
1: The water was warm, and you know, especially October, that, that kind of stuff can happen. So, I think it's important to realize that we don't always have a ton of time and a ton of notice. And you know, a lot of people said, Oh, you know, we had no idea the storm was coming, and that's just the nature of living. In, near the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, these storms sometimes will come all the way from Africa and into the Gulf, but oftentimes they do form in the Western Caribbean, and it's not far from the Western Caribbean to the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, while Nate was a much weaker hurricane, had a lot less significant impacts, I mean, Nate was a similar kind of thing where it, you know it formed and was up making landfall in a couple of days. We don't always have a ton of time. And obviously Florence was a huge wind event, or sorry, Florence was a huge rain event, whereas Michael was a big surge event. Fortunately, where most of the surge went, not many people lived. Right. But obviously for the areas that it hit, it was a huge wind event. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you just see, you know, entire cities. I mean, Mexico
0: Beach was Correct. leveled.
1: Correct, yeah. But I think Mexico Beach's population is about 1,800 people. Right. So obviously had it got into a, you know, a city of thirty forty thousand, 40,000, obviously the damage in terms of dollars would have been a lot worse. But obviously it was devastating to the people that live there.
0: Uh-huh. So the good news is, is that I didn't realize there's that many tropical waves in a season. There, I mean, there's 60... 60 opportunities but only a few actually make it
1: correct and that's kind of how the seasonal forecasts work is they kind of work on effectively kind of the number of these systems coming off africa doesn't really change that much year to year it's about 60 maybe 70 each year but some years if the conditions are conducive You know, maybe six or eight of them will become hurricanes Another other years, maybe zero or two or three, because you can get hurricanes forming from other processes like we talked about earlier. You can get them coming from the mid latitudes and redeveloping in the tropics or they can form just from other kinds of processes, especially early and late in the season, typically August, September August, September and October is when those systems coming off Africa. Those are the ones that form and typically those are the ones that hit major hurricanes. The ones that form because everything's kind of, ripe. Correct. Yeah. And so typically the the Atlantic hurricane season peaks the, the peak date if you had to pick one is September 10th. It's kind of considered like the peak of the hurricane season. So typically the hurricane season as it moves along, the sea surface temperatures continue to get warmer in October. So the, the juice for the hurricane gets better as the season goes along, if you're a hurricane. But the shear also tends to go up starting in early August. So September is kind of the perfect intersection of when the shear is still pretty low and the water temperatures are warm. By October, the waters generally even get a little warmer, but the shear is much too strong. in pretty much any, everywhere except the Caribbean, which is why most of your late season stuff comes out of the Western Caribbean.
0: So your forecasting is, you know— long-term way out there, but the NHC's forecasting is more today, right? It's more short-term versus long-term. Is that correct? Do you guys work together? Are you cooperative?
1: Correct. Yeah. So they do. So the so NOAA um, and some of the National Hurricane Center forecasters do do a seasonal forecast, very similar to ours. Two of their forecasters are former Bill Gray students, so we obviously know each other very well and talk a lot. So th- they are separate. Our, our forecast is separate from theirs, but obviously we, we're very collegial and you know talk together a lot. Do they tend
0: it. to be similar? Yes. Do yes. they tend to be in agreement? I guess. Yes,
1: it's pretty rare that we don't agree because and. We, so there's a website that we built. I built with a group from Barcelona called SeasonalHurricanePredictions.org, and we have 26 different groups submitting seasonal forecasts for the Atlantic. And this is these are all credentialed meteorologists. It's not you know just letting anyone submit. So these are universities, private sector weather companies like AccuWeather and Impact Weather, and then government agencies. So NOAA does one, but you also get one from the Mexican Met Service.
0: Are those the organizations that put out like GFS and the the so-called European model? Etc. Y-
1: yes. So the European model, the European Center does do their own seasonal forecast. That one is not publicly available. So that one's not on our website. I would love it if they would put that, up, make it publicly available. But they don't share. They don't share it. But the UK Met Office, they have a global weather model that the Hurricane Center uses, and they also do a seasonal forecast that is publicly available. So that one is on our website. And then there's a lot of universities. And the interesting thing is Colorado State University, obviously Colorado is a landlocked state. But- there's more hurricane forecasts coming from landlocked states than there are from states actually bordering an ocean. You know, one of the things
0: that uh, people in our industry, whether it's carriers or service providers like ourselves, wonder about or look for, obviously, what are good sites that we can go on? If you have any recommendations for us, that you know, amateur storm followers, because of our own each of our vested interests in what happens with a hurricane, to see the models. Because one of the nerve-wracking things, I'm sure I speak for many people in the insurance industry, it goes on for days. And day one, it might be going 400 miles this way. And day three, it might be going 400 miles in the other direction. And how to make decisions based on your policy counts and populations and other things. I mean, we're very focused on it for the duration, the life cycle of the hurricane. Do you have any good sites for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously the Hurricane Center—they are the ones that do the official forecast, and their their forecasts are are excellent. Um, and those guys and girls are the ones that have been doing it for a very long time. So, you know, it's important not if you see a model one model shift to necessarily say, oh, it's, it's the European Center model says it's going to do this, and I'm just going to go with that model because even though the European Center is a good model, it's had some horrible forecasts. So it's important not to just put all your eggs in one model basket. But there's a ton of really good visualization websites for various models i use one called tropical tidbits um, which is by a grad student at florida state um, and it's an excellent visualization website for weather model output it's an excellent visualization site for monitoring observations so like what the current water temperatures are and he has a great visualization for aircraft reconnaissance so if you want to see if there's a plane flying into a hurricane and you want to see it in a vid. so basically th- the plane spits out this kind of gross looking text that You know, I have to remind myself every year what the heck all the different numbers mean because they don't label them or anything. But he has a nice way to visualize it and he actually will see where the plane is all the time. So you can see when the plane's monitoring the outer eye or sorry, monitoring the eye wall, when it's going to be coming back in. So you can kind of time it and say, okay, I'm going to check now because it's going to be flying through the center. So we'll see what the current pressure is. And to me, that's what I always look at is more than the wind, because the wind is it's very hard to measure the strongest wind in a hurricane because it could be anywhere. Right. Whereas the pressure is going to be lowest at the center. And if you have a well-developed hurricane, you know the pressure really, really well. And so I always look at the pressure because if the pressure's going down, either the winds are going up or it's getting bigger, both of which are bad. Either obviously stronger winds mean more damage, but obviously a larger storm also means larger area to be damaged as well as potential storm surge.
0: So there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. I want to pick your brain for a second about technology we're an insuretech web podcast and what we kind of focus in on is different tools that are being produced for us to do our work where we work in the claim side but it can be an underwriting could be in any number of different functions in insurance talk to us about technology and your work What's changing? What's happening? What's going on?
1: Yeah, so technology is a huge deal. It's critical. So we use statistical modeling primarily. So we use historical weather data. And so when these forecasts got started in the early 1980s with Bill Gray, you know, he literally was using a slide rule and things like that for some of these calculations. And I think it's a credit to his kind of a scientific ingenuity. He had to kind of know what he was looking for and basically call up people and ask them to send him data on paper and have it be, you know, basically like manually entered into a computer. Whereas obviously nowadays it's a whole lot easier to get data. There's basically what we call these reanalysis data sets. So basically, it takes all the observations from satellites, from weather stations, from ships, and it basically puts them all into this global grid. And then you use a model to kind of fill in the gaps where there were no observations. And so we have these data sets going back as far as mid-19th century. Obviously, as you go back in time, the hurricane data gets more uncertain because Prior to satellites, anything in the eastern Atlantic you probably missed unless a ship happened to encounter it. And obviously, too, what the water temperatures were in 1926— you know, it's it, the data gets less certain as you go back, especially World War One and World War II. The data was really suspect. But that notwithstanding, we now have globally gridded data that's quite reliable back to at least 1980. So that's one of the things that we're using. And one of these new products literally just came out from the European Center um, a couple of weeks ago back to 1979. So that's one of the things we're going to be working on, basically redeveloping models, hopefully in time for the uh, forecast in April, which is only a couple, a couple months away. Um, and also one other thing we're doing is We're going to be using a new approach to forecasting this year as well. So these global weather models, or we have these climate models that will predict weather conditions out six months, say, and so we're not obviously looking for its forecast for June 12th. But we want to say, OK, you know, what is the model forecasting for certain parts of the globe, say, in July? And then basically what I use is I have a, an early August statistical model that I built that had July data. But instead of using the July observations, use what the model forecasts the conditions are going to be like in July. Okay. So that's what we're going to be incorporating combined with our normal model. We're going to be combining this kind of what we call a hybrid model. So it's statistics and dynamics from my dynamical model. And given they have like a 35 year kind of like historical database that they test the model on to make sure it works. And it showed pretty good skill. So we're hoping that will help with the skill, especially with the early seasonal forecasts, which in general are the ones that have the least skill. Um, And obviously add a little more confidence to the updated forecast as well.
0: So data is everything for you guys.
1: Yes, yes. I have a lot of spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) You know how to use, I guess you know how to use Excel, huh? Yeah, I I spend a lot of time on Excel. (laughs) So let's talk
0: about 2019. Are you ready to talk about 2019? Sure. Let's talk about 2019. What are, you, what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, so we put out our first formal forecast in early April. So until then, we don't have specific numbers. I think one of the things that we're watching, and the big question is, are we going to have El Nino? So last year, we were just below the El Nino threshold. It's basically the waters are one degree Fahrenheit warmer than normal, which seems, you know, hardly anything. But in the tropics, what seems normal in the mid-latitudes are, you know, hardly a blip is a big deal in the tropics. Small changes make big changes in the atmosphere. And so this, if you'd asked me two months ago, I would have said the odds of El Nino for this coming summer and fall were quite low, but there's been some pretty big changes to the low-level winds in the tropical Pacific. And I think certainly, us uh, the chance of a weak to moderate El Nino is definitely on the table, and that's something we're gonna be monitoring very closely. Typically, if that's gonna develop, it develops in March, April. So that's one of the big reasons we don't issue a forecast in February is you kind of just have to watch and wait and see how this how this takes place. But I think they're certainly going to I would say that's the big thing where that's got a lot of uncertainty.
0: So do you um, see a day where your forecasts are perfect?
1: I don't think that's going to be possible because even if you know exactly. So even if you say, say, OK, I'll take August, September large scale fields and know exactly what the weather conditions were like during the peak of the season, you still won't have a model that predicts with 100% accuracy the number of storms. Because again, at the end of the day, hurricanes are synoptic scale, smaller scale weather events, and you're using large scale conditions to predict them. And numerical models can predict storms out to maybe 10 days, but then their skill isn't great after that. So you won't be able to kind of start from August 1st and run the model forward and predict that, too. So you're never going to have a perfect, quote-unquote, seasonal forecast. But I think there are some avenues where we can get beyond just predicting the number of storms. Obviously, that's interesting, but obviously what most people care about is how many are going to make landfall.
0: Correct. That's the um, big question.
1: And, you know, again, you're obviously there's going to be less certainty because... It's the per- basically the percentage of the storms that form. I mean, you can have a dead season, but if everything that forms hits land, that's all that people care about. And so I think there's a couple of ways you can go. Predicting the large-scale atmosphere, especially in the middle latitudes in the summer, does not have much skill. So I, that's going to be tricky. But in general, if you can maybe figure out where the storms are more likely to form in a season— that can help with landfalls because typically the last couple of years have been kind of crap examples because we had Florence and Irma that form right off Africa. But typically storms forming right off Africa tend to recurve and not hit the U.S., whereas storms forming closer to the U.S. are more likely to hit the U.S. And especially if they form in the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico, they're going to hit something.
0: I was going to say, it seems like Caribbean storms yeah, are usually— stay dangerous. Yeah,
1: yeah, because either they're going to smack the U.S. or they're going to hit Central America or hit the Caribbean. Obviously, none of those are good scenarios for people. Again, and so typically what happens is systems coming off Africa, if they're weak, will just go straight west. But if they're stronger, they'll tend to move north of due west. And the further north the storms move, the better a chance of something from the mid-latitudes coming in and kicking it out to sea. Florence and Irma, again, are kind of, as Dr. Gray used to say, the exceptions that prove the rule. I mean, you do get storms that will just keep going west, but that requires a really strong subtropical ridge or subtropical high to just keep driving the storm all the way west.
0: Right, right. Every once in a while, you'll see that one come off Africa and just make a straight beeline for Mexico.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it just depends on kind of how strong the ridge is. And also, these waves that come off Africa can come off at different latitudes. So if they come off closer, a little further north, Honestly, usually about the latitude of Senegal, that's where that's like kind of the the bad latitude, so to speak, for storms that may eventually hit the U.S. If they come off much further north, they mostly just go out to sea and not impact anyone.
0: So if they stay south, those are the ones you're more concerned with?
1: Correct. In general, I mean, you can have ones that buck the trend, but in general, the ones that are a little further south are bad in terms of impacts.
0: So two last questions. One is I live in California, and uh, as you know, we've had terrible fire seasons one after another for the last several years. Are you involved in any of the work or forecasting or thinking about what's going on there?
1: So while I work for Colorado State. I actually live in California as well. And so my wife's family is from Santa Rosa. So their house was not taken out by the fire, but it was about a half mile from where the uh, Upper Hidden Valley fire was. So I'm pretty intimately aware of the uh, the fire situation in California. So I don't specifically issue forecasts for wildfires or something along that lines, but obviously living in California, we definitely keep a very close eye on it. And I think you know, kind of like what we talked about with hurricanes, you know, wildfires, it's the same thing where, you know, when people ask about, is it climate change? And the answer is, well, yes and no. You know, I mean, there's there's changes in the climate that are likely exacerbating the fuel conditions and things. But also there's, you know, forest management changes where, you know when you have houses in these forests where you used to be able to control burns, you can't because there's people living there now. And then also too, you know, as people build into these areas that are more fire prone, well, that's what ends up happening. And so I guess at the end of the day, I mean, it's important to realize wildfires in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. I mean, it's necessary for plant growth and for tree growth and clearing out dead trees and all those things. It's just, you know, when, when fires are in, when fires are in the way of humans, that's when things are bad.
0: I grew up in Southern California And there's a, the vegetation is called chaparral there. And part of its life cycle is to burn, right? I mean, that's, it's expected to. So, and if you look at Southern California, there's a lot of building in Southern California.
1: Correct. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is that that needs to burn. I mean, it's healthy. I mean, and going back to Santa Rosa, I mean, there's the areas that were, that were incredibly burned, like like where the fire burned, incredibly hot, look horrible. But the areas where it was like the backburn, there's some, there's a whole bunch of trails there and it looks so much better than it did. It needed to burn. And so that's obviously the, the big question is, is there a way that we can, you know, take these trees that need to burn and burn them without, you know, obviously impacting people. And that's obviously the big thing I think in the future is going to be, you know, basically doing controlled burns in such a way to kind of ameliorate this the, the threat from the wildfires. And obviously we're going to have to have these discussions going forward in time, especially if climate change continues to make things drier and more susceptible. We're going to have to be even better and more proactive about cutting down dead trees and taking care of all this stuff.
0: Right, and ironically, I, I live in Sacramento. We're having a wonderful wet year, and uh, there's lots of snowpack, which is good news. But the bad news is, is that mean there's a lot of growth in vegetation and fuel, right?
1: Correct, yeah, although I think in general, if you look at the data— Obviously, you have the growth in fuel, but I think in general, you're better off with a wet year than you are a dry, yeah, a dry yeah, yeah, year because stuff yeah. dries out a lot faster when it's dry. But yes, I mean, the snow in the Sierra in February, I mean, I think Mammoth is going to set its all-time snow record for February in by February 15th. Oh, good. So that's pretty impressive given they have 50 years of snow records to set the all-time February snow record by the middle of the month. Last
0: question I want to ask you is about our industry Of course, you have a very important relationship with the insurance industry. Are we giving you all the support? And is there anything we can do for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I I obviously I'm very interested in, you know, I'm interested, obviously, in the forecasting of hurricanes. But obviously, a lot of it also resides in how that obviously impacts people. Because at the end of the day, if I put out a forecast and nobody does anything with it, then in my mind, it's useless. And so, you know, I'm always very interested in also looking at, you know, the human impacts of these disasters and, you know, are there ways that we can better predict the likely impacts? And then obviously also very interested in resilience for disasters as well. I mean, I think that's a huge thing is, you know, regardless of climate change, we at least need to be prepared for what we've seen in the past. And I think a lot of times with hurricanes, with wildfires, everything else, we're not even prepared for that, let alone what, if climate change makes these storms worse in the future. we got that to worry about, too. But I think really, you know, at least being ready for the past. And I think, again, the more data I can get my hands on, the better.
0: Okay. Well, we'll encourage our listeners to help Dr. Phil with uh, the other Dr. Phil with, uh, with data. So let's do that. And listen, thank you so much. I know you, you have a presentation soon, right? We're at the Elevate Conference, by the way, Exact Conference, and Phil is speaking today, correct?
1: Correct, yes. No better place to talk hurricanes in Salt Lake City in February.
0: You. <laughs> and you have a very interested audience, I'm sure. Well, thanks for being with
1: us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Well, I hope that you got as much out of that as I did. I was really honored to be able to be with Phil Klotzbach, who, if you've never met him before or seen him speak, and he speaks frequently at many insurance conferences, he looks like he's about 22 years old. He's a very young looking man, but uh, uh, very bright, very gifted, and as you heard, very articulate when it comes to talking about hurricanes, climate, and what's coming and the integration with insurance. And he's uh is very generous to give us some time. He spoke at the Elevate conference to a packed house. And so for him to give us a little time to be on our podcast was great. I hope that you look up his his annual predictions that he does. I think like he said in the podcast, the first one comes out in April, if I'm not mistaken. So that should be soon. And that's on the Colorado State University climatology website. I'm sure it's easy to find the annual hurricane forecast. And we want to thank thank you uh, Phil for your time and your generosity and we'll be with you next time on another episode of FNO InsureTech. Anthony, do you want to give our little commercial?
1: Yeah, if uh, you guys like like we ask every week if you enjoy what we're doing here at FNO InsureTech, please make sure to go to your podcast player wherever that may be. And give us some feedback, give us a review and a rating. You can also follow us on Twitter at PodcastFNO and go to facebook.com slash FNO podcast or FNO InsureTech. I'm sorry, facebook.com slash FNO InsureTech. Follow us there as well. Thanks, Anthony.
0: And we'll talk to you next week.